Thank you, worship team. Thank you for coming, and good morning. Take your Bibles and turn, guess where? 1 Corinthians, as we continue our study. In uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul writing to the church of Corinth in the first century. I just want to say our, our passage today is just a little bit awkward uh, to preach for me, which isn't really new in 1 Corinthians, but uh, one of the awkward parts is that Paul is writing to say that people like me, pastors and missionaries, really should be paid. Um, then Paul says, this is the other awkward part, Paul says, but I'm not going to take any pay, and uh, so thank you, Paul, for kind of showing up pastors who take a paycheck. The point is, however, a lot bigger than that. The point is on this subject that the gospel is so important that we should pay those who serve the cause of the gospel. But on the other hand, the gospel is so important that if you aren't paid, you still got to get the gospel out. And so either way, the emphasis is on the importance of the gospel. I know uh, there are many pastors who do the work of a pastor and need to support themselves in, in some way. And I truly know that so many of you in this room and in our church family uh, contribute chunks of time, sacrificially, and you don't get paid, and you're serving the same cause of the same gospel. And you are really more the, the true heroes of this passage. You serve as sacrifice, and through your sacrifice, uh, people like me and missionaries and others who are on staff are able to uh, be free from those concerns of earning a living because we are able to do that through serving the gospel. Now, Paul doesn't open with that, but he gets there pretty quick. Paul opens chapter 9 with a very strong statement about his authority as uh, an apostle. And it's pretty clear from what we read that there were people in the church at Corinth who did not respect his authority or who for perhaps didn't even consider him to be a legitimate apostle. You'll catch the tone. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment, criticize me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas, that's Peter, or is it only I and Barnabas who must work for a living? Does, does, does Paul sound a little defensive here? Uh, rightly so. He had, he had both authority and rights as a legitimate apostle. His first statement, am I not free? If you were with us last week, you know it. Uh, this comes on the heels of a discussion about freedom as Christians to have differing convictions. The issue, the big issue there was, can you eat meat that's sacrificed to idols? And it was just one more thing that divided the church at Corinth, and some said you could, some said you couldn't. And uh, Paul is actually not done talking about that. He'll pick it up again in chapter 10. 
but he kind of inserts this issue and say, if we're going to talk about rights and freedoms to, to do your own thing, he said, I'm an apostle. I would have that right, and people are saying that I, that I don't have, have freedom. I have freedom. Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Those two statements are, are closely connected because one of, the, one of the marks of a true apostle is that they must be an eyewitness to the resurrected Jesus. Uh, the 12 disciples became known as apostles. The, the title is just, the description is just a little bit different. To be a disciple is to follow Jesus. And they did that throughout his ministry, right? They were disciples, followers, learners from Jesus. But then they became apostles, which means those who are sent. So they have been sent to launch the church. And the apostles had some unique authority because God could speak to them directly. In the absence of a New Testament, God would speak to them directly. And they had authority to speak for God in a unique sense. And some were questioning, well, I don't know if Paul's a legitimate apostle because after all, he, didn't, he wasn't one of those who followed Jesus during his ministry. But here's the clarifying thing. Judas, as you know, uh, perhaps uh, committed suicide, so the 12 disciples were down to 11. And after Jesus ascended to heaven, the disciples said, we need to fill the spot of Judas. And so as they were picking someone, Acts chapter 1, uh, they, they said, we need to find someone who is a witness to the resurrected Christ. And they did. And that filled that slot, if you will. Paul was not saved until two years later. Acts chapter 9. But did he see the resurrected Christ? Oh yeah, he did. Because in Acts chapter 9, when he came to faith in Christ, it's because Jesus Christ, the resurrected Christ, actually had made a special, personal, visible appearance to Jesus. And so he says, I am an apostle because I have seen Jesus our Lord. So the answer to those questions are, yes, you are an apostle. Yes, you have seen Jesus our Lord. And then Paul says, there's even more evidence that I have authority in your life as an apostle. He says, are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Uh, he says, you guys are the seal of my apostleship. A seal was that which, you know, like a, an important dignitary or official would have a ring with a, his signal, sing, uh, seal that would, an insignia that would say, this is mine. It was something visible that was evidence of the authority of the man whose insignia it was. And he says, you guys are like visible proof that God has put me in this place of leadership in your life. And it's, it's kind of sad. We know who, who Paul is, and we kind of, it's kind of sad that he had to defend it in his day. So he's saying, people, I, I came to Corinth. I shared the gospel with you. I helped plant the church. I did plant the church. I taught you. I discipled you. I prayed for you. I cared for you. I comforted you in your problems. I encouraged you to walk with God. And, and now you're saying... Who are you? I'm sure that Paul expected opposition from the world. He faced it often. But what really hurts is opposition from within, from those who are part of the church family. And that, that's what he's saying. Uh, someone has said, I know I heard it from Prof. Howard Hendricks, that uh, Christians are the only army that shoot their own wounded. Sometimes that's true. Sometimes that's true. So this is my defense, he says in verse 3, for those who sit in judgment on me. So after saying and establishing his, his authority, he says, and, he, and here are some of the rights that I would have. 
You've been talking about rights to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, and so forth. It says, I have rights. Don't we have the right to food and drink, which is financial support? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Um, Paul says, I have the right to be married. Now, we know that if you've been studying with us, chapter 7, Paul made a special point to say, I don't prefer being married because of my ministry. But he said, I could be, right? And in fact, it's interesting that Cephas, another name for Peter, Peter was a married man, which kind of makes it interesting. Um, in light of how some view him, Peter was not an unmarried priest or, or pope, uh, we know in Luke chapter 4 that Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. The only way you get a mother-in-law is to marry someone. Peter was married. Paul chose not to be. And then finally in verse 6, is it only Barnabas and I who must work for a living? Actually, literally, as most translations say, it's a double negative, who lack the right to not work, uh, which is like we work on the side. We support ourselves. Paul isn't claiming that he never received financial gifts. He did. Uh, but he never asked for it, and he never expected it. He never depended on it. So he's not taking support. It almost seems that kind of sad that because he's not taking financial support, some held that against him. Well, you must not be a real apostle because you aren't even getting paid. He goes, you know, no good deed goes unpunished. Like, I'm actually doing this voluntarily, and now you're using that against me to say that I'm not really an apostle. I serve voluntarily, he's saying, but I'm no less an apostle. It's a little bit, I was thinking, like uh, comparing Pastor Nate and I, who are elders here, to the other elders, uh, Chris, Rod, Tom, and Scott, our volunteer elders. We all, we all have the same ro uh, uh, role, the same authority, though we have different roles, you could say. Um, equal authority, though on staff we have more responsibility, right? Uh, so he says, it, it's, it doesn't matter if we're paid or not, the issue is an apostle. That Paul then, after saying that he has a right to pay, goes into some depth. This is like a, a pretty long passage defending the importance of paying some who teach, lead, serve in the gospel. Verse 7, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk? This, these, here's three examples. There's going to be more examples of, of deserving pay. Soldiers don't go to war and have to pack lunches uh, for the duration of the, of the war. Someone's going to feed them. I suppose some of you who served and ate MREs, I understand that you might have wished you brought your own food along, but vineyard, if you tend a vineyard working in the, in the heat all day is it okay if you pick some grapes for a snack absolutely, and, and shepherds they can, they can drink some of the goat's milk verse 8 do I say this merely from a human point of view, doesn't the law say the same thing, so it's deeper than this, for it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. That's in Deuteronomy. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? 
Yes, this was written for us because when the plowman plows and the thresher threshes, they ought to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. So he said, on the one hand, this is just a natural illustration, but even the Old Testament law used this illustration. Don't muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. Now, he was actually talking about literal uh, oxen, and, and you should not muzzle them when they're working for you. Uh, in ancient times, and in fact, I looked up a, a video this week, there are still countries where this is, this is done. They tread out grain exactly like they were doing it back then. Uh, I saw the video of, uh, they took like four oxen and tied them, yoked them together. And so you have these four oxen and someone's on each side and they, then they pile up the grain and, and they just walk, it, walk the oxen over and over and over and over until this thing all gets threshed out and then they can pull away the, 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 the stalks and the, the chaff and they got their grain and, and indeed the oxen were not muzzled it's okay while they're working for you that they can eat some of the grain that they're working on. So that, that's the illustration. And so the plowman, the farmer who plows the ground, threshers, the farmer who manages these oxen, they would hope to be paid, right? So he implies it, verse 11, if we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? So he's making the point of we would deserve to be financially uh, supported for the work that we do in the ministry. And Paul would make that same uh, case when he wrote to Timothy. Timothy was an elder, pastor, shepherd in Ephesus. And he said, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, here it is, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Two quotes from the Old Testament law. And the idea of double honor is, you're supposed to respect elders, but this would be a double honor of also paying them. If what? If they're working in the, in, in the administration, leadership, and preaching and teaching. And so it, he's making a, a pretty simple, obvious point, and he's calling ministry work. Workers should be paid if we've sown a spiritual harvest. Well, as we look at this, how do we apply it? First of all, I know you, you pay us as pastors and, and, and staff, and uh, an appropriate time for me to say thank you. We are, we are well taken care of. We are, we are free from worrying about that, except everybody has some worries sometimes, but we, we are free to serve because of the generosity of Open Door Bible Church through the years. And uh, so many of you have um, supported Open Door regularly, financially, through the years, a silent ministry, you could say, that is absolutely crucial for a ministry to go on. And uh, it's so appreciated. So just getting a couple of little practical things. Salaries are the biggest categories of our budget, biggest category of our budget, of course. And uh, if you ever you're interested in knowing the budget, come to the congregational meeting. And it's all spelled out, you know, where all the money goes. Uh, salaries, utilities, technology, curriculum, building, maintenance, donuts. When you eat those donuts, you think they're free. <laughs> You're paying for them. Kind of like thinking, you know, they, the city comes and they, they take away our snow for free. It's amazing. So, uh, yeah, you know, through the offering boxes or online giving or, or mailed, whatever, and... and, and uh, 
it's, it's amazing and wonderful how God is taking care of the church, how he's taking care of, uh, of us in, 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 who, are, who are paid for ministry. But beyond that, who needs our financial support? What else is in our budget? Missionary support. Missionaries. Um, Open Door supports uh, 10 or so missionary families, plus um, helping four of our retired missionaries. But you need to know that while, while our church supports, and some of them substantially, especially members sent out of our church, um, they are depending upon other support, not just one church. That's how the independent missionary uh, functions. And so there might be multiple churches that support an individual missionary, and then there are uh, a lot of individuals that support them as well. And it's not only essential for them, it's a huge blessing to you when you support a missionary individually. Uh, Priscilla and I started doing that. We supported our first missionary family, I guess, 45 years ago when we were first married. And uh, through the years, we've added others. And those are the missionaries that we feel most connected to. Just an example, uh, the past couple of weeks, uh, back in 2000 and 2003, we visited together. We were in Thailand for some ministry trips. And we met this uh, national worker, uh, Bunta and Pon, and their daughter, uh, who's disabled, uh, Bo. And so through the years, we've uh, supported them financially. And... Uh, because we got to know them there. We got to eat in their home, we got, you know, so forth. Uh, this past week, their, their daughter uh, passed away, uh, 34 years old, I think she was, and a disabled daughter and their only child. But throughout the last several weeks, through uh, messaging on, on Facebook and videos, uh, uh, we've been able to correspond with her, Priscilla and, and, and Pon especially, sending messages of encouragement and her, you know, working with her uh, limited English because our tie doesn't exist, uh, and, and communicating and, and being an encouragement on the other side of the world. It's amazing that we're able to do that. I would urge you personally to be involved. So to get even more specific... We have an opportunity as we have a, a new missionary couple that is planning on being sent out. And many of you will recognize Tim and Sis Keith. They have uh, just finished their missionary training uh, down in Missouri with Ethnos 360. And in fact, just a couple weeks ago, they got all the official paperwork that they can receive uh, support officially through uh, the missions ag agency Ethnos. And I thought it was kind of providential as I was studying this to go, we need, we need to get them out in front of us here because they are living here in Grafton and they are in this area specifically to get to know the church better. They've been, they're members of our church and they've been here between different phases of their training. But this is launch time and they hope to be able to leave sometime in 2024 with, with full support. So I just encourage you to consider, pray about getting on their team. Uh, probably the best way to connect and know what's going on in their life is just to look. If you all look at your phones right now, it's okay. Um, don't stay on Facebook the next 30 minutes, maybe. But uh, Keith's to Paraguay. Just join that group, and you'll get all the latest updates. The other way you can do that, though, is uh, there are prayer cards at the back table, and there's a sign-up sheet. You can sign up to get an email update or something like that. Uh, have them for dinner. Take them to dinner. Uh, Priscilla and I had the privilege of being able to go there for dinner for, to their apartment this past week, hear what's going on 
what their, what their thoughts are as they hopefully uh, are able to leave for Paraguay next month. Now back to our regular programming in chapter 9. If from others, verse 12, if from others we have this, if others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? And then he says this, but we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. I mean, it's like, it's like you know, for two paragraphs now, he didn't make the case, we have the right to be paid. Like he's, he's trying to, you know, raise support. He says, no. We did not use this right because we didn't want it to hinder the gospel. We didn't want to hesitate, can you go to the next town? We don't want our motives to be questioned. And anybody who knew Paul in Corinth knew this was true. This is a little review of how we introduced the book, but uh, when Paul came to Corinth, he did support himself financially. Chapter 18 of Acts is where the story is told, how they came there, and they met this couple, Aquila and Priscilla. And because he, Paul, was a tent maker as they were, that's Aquila and Priscilla, he stayed and worked with them, sharing the gospel, etc. And then verse 5, when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. So there was, in fact... A, a season where he had to work as a tent maker there, but then once Paul and Silas came with some support from Macedonia, ah, then he could do it full time again. So he, he said, I, I can work on, on that either way. Thessalonians, he said the same thing. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. So pay was not his motivation. I didn't use my rights even though I had the rights. Keep reading in verse 13 and 14. Don't you know that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in what's offered on the altar? Priests are supported. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. And the Lord means Jesus, and so that makes us want to flip back in our New Testaments to the gospels and say, where did Jesus say this? He didn't say it uh, word for word, but indeed he said it. Luke 10, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him into every town and place where he was about to go. He said, stay there eating and drinking whatever they give you for, quoting Leviticus, the worker is worthy of his wages. So Jesus was making that same point. So Paul is preaching the right to be paid and then he explains now in verse 15 and 16 and onward why he would not personally allow himself to get regular pay. But I have not, he's repeating in verse 15 what he said in verse 12, but I have not used any of these rights. And I am not writing this in hope that you will do such things for me. I would rather die than have anybody deprive me of this boast. Yet when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast for I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. So he said, uh, in case you think I'm trying to raise support, I'm not. That's not why I'm writing. No one was going to be able to accuse Paul 
of being the prosperity preacher who ended every message with this plea for money and then you know, flies off in his private jet or something like that. I would, I, I'm not going to be that guy because I don't want to be deprived of this boast. That's verse 15. And then he sends, tends to, seems to be saying the opposite. I don't want to boast, but I do boast. Okay? It's kind of a paradox the way he often put things. So what was his boast in verse 15? I don't want to be deprived of this boast. The boast is that I simply, I don't want to be a barrier. I don't want to create any hindrance to the gospel. He'll talk more about that. So that when I preach, I cannot boast. I'm compelled to preach. But there is a boast. I cannot boast for I am compelled to preach. So I will boast in that sense that I am not a hindrance to the gospel. But I cannot boast in the gospel itself. I contribute nothing. I can add nothing to the gospel, is his point. I'm a messenger, not the message. The power is in the message, not the messenger. We know that. We need Paul as a messenger. And uh, the church needs uh, missionaries, pastors, evangelists, workers to care about the gospel. And really, we do know that God is at work using each of us to know the gospel and believe it, to know it well enough to share it, to do whatever we are gifted to do to serve the gospel, to pray for those who need the gospel. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's the church's task, the centrality of the gospel. And it's so important, Paul says, when I preach, I cannot boast, I am compelled. There, I, I don't have a choice. Woe to me. Uh, that, these, are, these are strong uh, terms. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. I think we all know that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ's death on the cross for our sins was the central message of Paul. Uh, we've seen it throughout his writings. Galatians 6, may I never boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he started this book, he said, I'm resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Or Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Everyone's going to live somewhere forever. And it all depends on what they do with the cross. Uh, nothing else will take that place. Nothing else can distract him. And that's kind of where he's going. I, I, have, I have rights, but I'll give up rights because I've got to get this message out. Are we focused on the cross? So personally ask yourself, how focused are you on the cross? When perhaps you have an opportunity to have a spiritually oriented conversation with somebody who needs the gospel. It may begin with I really like my church or something like that. It may begin with something that God has done for you and how he, how he uh, enables you and strengthens you or encourages you or sustains you. Is your target to get to the cross? Because just knowing that you like your church isn't going to get anybody to heaven. Knowing that, that uh, your relationship to Jesus is really important to you and somehow makes you feel better and do life better doesn't get them to heaven. We've got to get to the cross. And um, Paul says, that's what I'm all about. And that's why it'll make sense later on. He says, I'm not going to let anything distract me from the focus on the cross because that is 
the good news. The good news is he died on the cross for our sins and he rose again and he can offer us eternal life. Good news means there's bad news. So let's review briefly what the good news is. So the word gospel means good news. That's literally the word in the Greek language. If we're reading gospel, you're reading good news. The bad news. The bad news is that we have all sinned and come short of God's glory. None of us deserve heaven. It changes everything about what religion what religious people think about today. There always is the idea we earn our way to heaven. The bad news is we don't, can't, never will. Bad news is we never, no one measures up to God's standard of perfection. That's the bad news. Good news is God knew that and he loved us so much that he gave his only son, that's Jesus on the cross, that whoever believes in him and him only will not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16. So God so loved the world, he gave Jesus who took the penalty for our sin. And then he says, I got a gift for you, but you must put your trust, you must believe in me to have eternal life. Not good works, not a church, not a religion, not a baptism, not great things you do, but trusting in Christ. So bad news, we're sinners. Good news, Jesus died to pay for our sin and offer us the free gift of eternal life. And Paul says, God gave me one main job because everyone lives somewhere forever. Last week, our Thai friend's daughter, <clears throat> Bo, entered heaven because of the good news. Persona, I have a niece, 38 years old, <clears throat> who is right now in the final days of hospice care. She's going to enter heaven because of the gospel, because that's good news. And in the darkest, hardest times, the good news means everything. Focus on the cross and the empty tomb, because that's what is actually, that's what matters. Paul says, I'm compelled to preach that. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. He goes on to go in verse 17 to 18 with another kind of a paradox. He says, on one hand, I'm volunteering. On the other hand, I'm obligated. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I'm simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, <clears throat> that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge so as not to make use of my rights in preaching it. This is Paul's way of saying things. You know, I, I, I do boast, but I can't boast. I volunteer, but I'm actually obligated. So the voluntary part is that I am not obligated to anybody else. The not voluntary part is that I am obligated to God. And, and, and I am like, I'm like, he'll say it later, I'm a slave to the obligation that God has given me. So what is my reward if I offer it for free? What is my, how does it matter? What, what, just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free. He says, it is the privilege of offering it free and not to make use of my rights. Gordon uh, Fee writes a summary of this verse like this. In offering the fr free gospel, free of charge, Paul's own ministry becomes a living paradigm or illustration of the gospel itself. So Paul says, the reason I want to offer it for free is because I'm trying to illustrate salvation, which is free. So I, I, this is 
in his case, while, while, every, while, while we should pay those who serve the gospel, he says, I've chosen to do it for free to illustrate the gospel. It's free. Did you ever try to bless someone for free and they have a hard time accepting it? Many people have a hard time accepting a gift or, or kind deeds for free. There's this sense of obligation. And Priscilla and I have had that experience sometimes where we want to do something for someone. It's like, it's like they insist in paying. They, just, they, they can't let the scale be unequal. And frankly, it, just, it, it sometimes just reveals that, that need we have to deserve. And at one time, it's, it's one of the reasons why it's so, it's so hard sometimes to convince people of the gospel. Because nothing's free, right? You knew the donuts weren't free. <laughs> Someone's got to pay for that stuff. Salvation's free. Someone's got to pay for it. Jesus did. And in fact, the only way we can have that gift of salvation is as a gift to receive it. No strings attached. Grace alone by faith alone. And that needs to be the one-note song that we play over and over and over. It's a gift. It's a gift. It's a gift. You can't deserve it. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. You can't qualify for it. Salvation is free, but you've got to put your faith in Christ alone, a humbling step. And Paul says, that's what my life is about. I want to illustrate it so that, verse 19, I can reach as many as possible. Though I am free and belong to no man, not obligated to anybody else, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. So it's kind of another uh, ironic statement because on one hand he says, um, I have no obligations, I'm free, but I'm actually going to now make myself a slave to everyone. I'm going to make sacrifices, I'm going to give up my rights in order to reach as many as possible. And what he's going to go on to describe is how flexible he actually is about things that are important but non-essential. So the question we need to ask today is, how flexible are we about things that are important but non-essential to the gospel? Because that's going to be the tension that Paul's dealing with. And that's, that's, why, he, that's why this thing about can you eat meats offered, offered to idols or can you not eat meat offered to idols, that's, it's an important issue. He's going to try to resolve it, frankly, in the next chapter. But he says it's not that important. Let's think about what's really important. And are we flexible on the unimportant or less important? We talked last week, we described the different kinds of differences. There's absolutes, there's convictions, and there's preferences. How strong are we on convictions and preferences? And will we either give them up or just stay quiet for the sake of the gospel? I make my slave, myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. The whole church was divided at, at Corinth over, I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus. They were divided over meat sacrificed to idols, and they were arguing about everything. Meanwhile, the mission of the gospel was sitting on a shelf gathering dust because they were so wrapped up in the other issues. And Paul says, I'll give up pay, and I'll give up my preferences for the sake of the gospel. So he gives uh, three scenarios in which he will sacrifice his rights. Here's the three. 
To the Jews, I'll make accommodations. To the Gentiles, I'll make accommodations. And to those who are weak or sensitive, I'll give, make accommodations. First, to the Jews, verse 20. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. So that they would be saved, right? To those under the law, that's Jews, I became like one under the law. Though I myself, parenthesis, I'm not under the law. He said, I'm not obligated to the Old Testament law. This is post-Jesus. But I, I, I submitted to it so as to win those under the law. That's the Jews. Number two, to those not having the law, that's Gentiles, non-Jews, I became like one not having the law, like a Gentile, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. That's kind of interesting. He says, I'm not lawless. I'm, I'm still under authority. I'm under God's authority. I'm under Christ's authority. So as, why? Verse 21, end of the verse. So as to win those not having the law, Gentiles. Case three, to the weak I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. He doesn't save them, Christ does, but he's saying I'm that instrument by which they are saved. The Jewish scenario. There were Jewish practices that had expired because the law was fulfilled by Jesus. Throughout Galatians, Romans, and Colossians, we find peppered all these statements like, you know, circumcision doesn't matter anymore, and those dietary laws don't really matter anymore, and those special observances don't matter anymore. And because Paul wants to make clear that nobody would think that those things are essential for salvation. It seems like a contradiction, but then he gets to uh, Timothy. Timothy was half Jewish, half Gentile, if you recall some of you, that uh, his dad was Gentile, his mom was a Jew. And uh, he, Timothy comes to faith in Christ, becomes uh, this young disciple following Paul, and he starts serving with Paul, and Paul required Timothy to be circumcised. Is that a contradiction when he said, circumcision doesn't matter? No, he says, you know what, Timothy, to be able to serve among Jews, since you're Jewish, I want you to be circumcised. Give up your rights. The young man had to be circumcised. What's surprising is, turns around and you got this friend Titus who becomes a disciple and partner of, of Timothy. And, and there were some Jewish people, Judaizers, who said, oh, if he's saved, he's got to be circumcised. Well, something's different. Titus was not a Jew. Titus was a Gentile. And so Paul put his foot down and says, Titus, you're not being circumcised. Galatians 2, 3. Is that a contradiction? No. That was becoming all things to all men so that I might save some you see, the Gentiles, if Titus had been required to be circumcised, the Gentiles would have been confused, saying, you mean that's what it takes to be saved? He said, I'm not going to do that. Paul says, I will flex, bend on things that don't matter as much as the gospel matters. One more concession to the Jews, to the Gentiles, and then to the weak. Remember, we talked about the weak in chapter 8. Uh, Paul said, uh, end of chapter 8, verse 13, Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. Uh, weak is, is a person more sensitive. Not, we aren't sure if he's got disbelievers, unbelievers in mind here, but, but he says, whatever it takes, 
If you're Jewish, I'll, I'll, I'll accommodate as much as I can without compromising the gospel. If you're Gentile, I'll accommodate as much as I can without compromising the gospel. If you're a more sensitive person about this or that, I, I will do all things by all possible means so that one more person could be saved. I do it for the sake of the gospel. Verse 23, I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. I think the blessing is simply to be able to see one more person saved. The, the, the goal, the mission, the purpose, I'm compelled. The eternal stakes are too important. I'll serve that cause. What's a big deal to you that's not as big a deal as the gospel? And what would God call you to give up? Or even just to be quiet about? so that it would not be a distraction to the gospel. Idle meat, controversy, it's important. Because you have to decide, and so Paul's going to say, yeah, we've got to work through that, chapter 10, we'll work it through. But he said, you're all about your rights, you're all about, you're free to do this and that. He says, what about the gospel? Is it getting in the way of that? Will you, will you flex in your opinions? Will, will you be gracious in your relationships? for the sake of the gospel. How big a deal is it that the neighbor doesn't mow his lawn as often as he should? How big of a deal is it that the umpire at your son's little league game doesn't call the right balls and strikes? How big of a deal is it that the coworker sometimes takes credit for what you do? How much do we care about building a case for the gospel to the place where we would simply learn to hold our tongue? It's not that important. How good are you at loving people who disagree with you? John 3.16 is a wonderful verse for us as believers. If you put your faith in Christ, uh, you've already applied John 3.16. So I'm going to suggest looking at it a little different way. Uh, look at John 3.16 through the eyes of, of God and ask yourself, not have I believed, because you already have, but do I love the whole world in a way that imitates God's love? And do I love those that are vastly different and view life different than I do? I recently watched a video of a preacher who tells about how he went to go get a haircut, and he got there, and his regular barber wasn't available. So they said, uh, so-and-so will take care of you. And this, this girl comes to cut his hair, and uh, I don't know how many years ago this was, but she had severely spiked colorful hair and had um, piercings all over her face, not to mention tattoos and weird clothes. And the preacher says, I just decided I'm just going to close my eyes and just, you know, get through this. The girl said, so what do you do for a living? <laughs> I'm a preacher at such and such. Really, she said? Because I just went to your bookstore recently to buy a Bible. Because I've been thinking I really need God, and I don't know anything about the Bible. I don't know anything about God. And so suddenly he had a completely different perspective about this girl that kind of rubbed him the wrong way. If I care about the gospel, God will put people in my life who need the gospel who are very different than me. 
They'll view life differently. They'll have different views. They'll look different. So what, what's important now? What, what rights are worth claiming in light of eternity? Obviously, in our day, a lot of people don't have a really good view of uh, Christians, the Bible, churches, right? Try to think sometimes, just from the perspective of someone who's lived in this community for a long time, and they, they drive by LL, and what is Open Door Bible Church? And so even though the word is open door, they aren't thinking the door is open for them, open for you. <laughs> and so it's a barrier. It's, it, it's tough to, to actually say, I'm going to go to a church, like it's got the word Bible in it. But you know what's so refreshing? People are doing it all the time because they know you. And suddenly every barrier that is difficult for them just kind of melts because they know you. And what they'll know about you is your grace. And that you care about them. You care about the most important things. And God uses that. So what matters? Paul says, I'm called to preach the gospel. I'm compelled to preach the gospel. I met Jesus on the road to Damascus, so he put me into his service for the gospel, and no pay issue is going to get in the way. No preference is going to get in the way. I want nothing to distract me from caring, reaching, seeking, sharing the only thing that will save a person from eternal judgment and give them eternal life. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the sufficiency of the gospel, the centrality that, that what you did for us on the cross was the, was the main event of human history. And it still is. And all the news in the world, no matter if it's about things we like or don't like, none of that is good news. But the good news is that you died for our sins and you rose again. And if we put our faith in you and you alone, we will have eternal life in heaven because our sins are forgiven and our slate is wiped clear and we are now in your, can be in your presence one minute after we die. Thank you for these eternal truths and promises. Help us to be refocused day by day, week by week, to look around us and see what our role is in not only walking with you but communicating you to the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen.